Good morning. I'm Eric. I'm the youth pastor here. And uh, as it is the first Sunday of the month, many of our teenagers are with us. And let's, let's take a moment and feel bad for them because they're staring down the barrel of this 20 minutes that we're going to spend in here. And it's, it's looking daunting for them. It's like when you're at traffic school and it just starts. And you're looking at a long day. But hopefully it'll be over quickly. Let me see if these comments sound familiar to you at all. You're not the boss of me, you're only my brother. If you don't give me that back, I'm telling mom. Wait till your father gets home. I got detention for something I didn't do and my parents are gonna meet with the principal. Slow down, I see a cop car. I avoided jury duty until I got a notice that I could face jail time. Here's my favorite. You're so beautiful. We should be together forever. God told me. <laughs> we all understand this idea of authority. We all get that there is an order to the way the world works. And when we experience conflict or we're looking for safety, we naturally lean towards those who are in charge because we want to see who can help us get what we need based on their authority and their control over a situation. So today in our passage in Matthew 12, we're going to be diving deep into this realm of authority. We want to know who's in charge, who has the authority. So as we unpack what Jesus says and does here, we're going to try to answer a couple questions. Who's in charge in our lives, in our personal lives? Who's in charge over our bodies? Who's in charge over our thoughts? Who's in charge over our beliefs? Who's in charge over our habits and the things we do over and over again? And as we answer those this morning, I hope we're going to walk away with a tighter grip of, on who's in charge and what that will change for us. So whether you're someone that's been following Jesus a long time or whether you're still on the fence about following Jesus, hopefully when you leave here, you'll see a few things more clearly. Who Jesus is, the authority Jesus has, and how that authority can be a game changer for each of us if we're willing to submit to his authority. So our passage is Matthew 12, verses 1 to 14. So if you have a Bible or a means to look at one, get one. If you don't have one and you'd like to follow along, raise your hand and our ushers will get one to you. So you know what's going on in this passage. This particular part of the Bible, this particular section, was written by an eyewitness and a disciple named Matthew. And this portion, this portion was written and it was directed at a very, very Jewish audience. And Matthew, the writer, spends a good chunk of time sending around the fulfillment of the Old Testament, which contained the Jewish scriptures. He even quotes the Jewish scriptures over 60 times, which is way more than the other gospels. But because he's writing to Jews specifically, Matthew's not going to take any time to explain Jewish culture. So I might need to. But just so you know, everyone he's writing to is going to know all about the Old Testament, all about the Torah, all about Jewish customs, all about Jewish rules, all about Jewish inside jokes. And don't miss that Matthew's purpose in writing to this group of Jews was to show them something about this specific man. Jesus of Nazareth, Matthew is going to say, was and is the Messiah that the whole Old Testament pointed to. And here's where we might trip on a little problem, because you and I in this room in 2018, we are not mostly a group of Jews. Most of us did not grow up memorizing the Torah. 
Most of us don't celebrate Yom Kippur and avoid Christmas and non-kosher food. Yet here we are in a passage where we're going to read about a Jewish Jesus, Jewish authority figures, and an argument about a Jewish rule called Sabbath. Now, we may not be Jewish, but this Sabbath rule is one that most of us are familiar with. After all, it is one of the Ten Commandments. And uh, we'll re- let's recap from Exodus 20. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. You are to labor six days and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You must not do any work. You, your son or daughter, your male or female servant, your livestock, or the resident alien who is within your gates. For the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and everything in them in six days. Then he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blesses the Sabbath day and declared it holy. The Sabbath was a day of celebration and prayer. It was unique because it was one of the, the only Ten Commandments that was a ritual, to re, something to repeat over and over. And it's one of the most important things observed in the Jewish faith. It's supposed to be deep and heavy and peaceful and restful. And that word Sabbath is when we take it from the original language, we can understand it, understand it by thinking about ceasing, ending, resting. And it's more than just observing a day like we would President's Day. It's a lot more than that. It's about soaking into the meaning of it, soaking into the significance of it. And by quitting work on this day, a Jew would be imitating and honoring their God and how he created and then he rested. And I want to emphasize how much the Jews revered the Sabbath. More than we revere having a barbecue on the 4th of July. More than we revere having a Christmas tree in our living room. It is a big deal to them. It's still a big deal to them if you are a reverent Jew. It is a big deal to them that they honor the Sabbath in not doing work. This came to light this week. Derek got an, uh, was trying to figure out his oven in his kitchen. And he was reading the manual. And he sent me a picture of it. His oven has Sabbath mode where it will bake without lights on and without physical fire. I don't know how, maybe it's using electricity, but it, so you can still eat on the Sabbath but not work. It's a big deal to them. To Maytag, it's still a big deal. And here's where we get another little problem. This problem comes as Jesus is going to clash with and frustrate these Jewish ruling leaders called the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees were a very prominent group within Judaism. They were known for their expertise in being religiously pious. They were in a category of their own above other people, and they were known for their dogged commitment to the written law, the Torah. And they were known for adding in lots of extra laws. These guys held some of the highest ranks of religious authority, and they loved the recognition that came with their position. They really loved getting people to join their team, adding converts, and their calling card, they were known for observing even the smallest detail of the law, hundreds and hundreds of laws, and they were always adding more to the list. And we're going to see much of Jesus' problem with the Pharisees is not with the rules that they do follow. Instead, Jesus is going to whoop on them a little bit for not doing the things most important to God, like justice, like doing what's merciful and being faithful to God. So maybe now you can see a little bit 
a little bit of smoke coming from what will soon be a fire because these Pharisees, these Pharisees are dry, these Pharisees are wooden, and they had been made so mad by this rabbi who claimed to be God, he claimed to have religious authority, and they're thinking, who is this guy? Doesn't he know how important we think we are? So let's read Matthew 12 and see what happens when the fire of Jesus' authority meets the kindling that is the Pharisees. Matthew 12. At that time, Jesus passed through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick and eat some heads of grain. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, See, your disciples are doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath. He said to them, Haven't... uh, Haven't you read what David did when he and those who were with him were hungry, how he entered the house of God and they ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for him or for those with him to eat, but only for the priests? Or haven't you read in the law that on Sabbath days, the priests in the temple violate the Sabbath and are innocent? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you'd known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, You would not have condemned the innocent, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Moving on from there, he entered their synagogue, and there he saw a man who had a shriveled hand, and in order to accuse him, they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And he replied to them, who among you, if you had a sheep that fell into a pit on the Sabbath, wouldn't take hold of it and lift it out? A person is worth far more than a sheep, so it is lawful to do what's good on the Sabbath. But then he told the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out, and it was restored as good as the other. But the Pharisees went out and plotted against him how they might kill him. Well, that escalated quickly. We go from eating snacks on a road trip to plotting a murder in just 14 verses. And, And in reality, the problems the Pharisees have with Jesus are not new. They've already accused him of being possessed by a demon, That's not exactly a positive review. And the Pharisees are not at all favorable to Jesus, I think, for two reasons. One, they don't like to Jesus because he doesn't submit to their form of religion and the form that they continue to shape. And number two, Jesus has the authority that they are desperate for. So let's peek into these situations that Matthew gives us. Each one is about the Sabbath, and each one seems to be about a violation of the Sabbath. And remember, to a Jew, there's not much worse than violating the Sabbath. And to a Pharisee, Violating the Sabbath is a sirens on emergency. They get their thrills pointing out where others seem to be failing to keep the law. And so their pointer fingers are out and ready and stretched. In the first eight verses, we see a scene. One group of guys, seemingly carefree, walking through a field of grain, and another group of guys, much better dressed, hiding in the bushes. And then we read how Jesus' disciples got hungry and were grabbing grain off the stalk and eating it. And right away, the Pharisees jumped from the bushes with an aha in each hand and accused the disciples and Jesus of doing what's against the law on the Sabbath. They accused them of working on the Sabbath. Sabbath is supposed to be about rest, peace, stopping. Sabbath is to be about relearning to trust in God as your provider and peacemaker. But Sabbath had become more than that. The Pharisees had added hundreds and hundreds of tiny rules that slowly been added to that single commandment. Making fire is work. 
Making food is work. Pushing an elevator button, work. Turning a doorknob, work. Traveling more than 3,000 cubits from your house, work. Treating a wound, work, if it's life-threatening. But if you'll probably not die, don't treat it. So many rules. And here is Jesus seeming to allow his disciples to work on the Sabbath, to travel further than 3,000 cubits from home on the Sabbath. And this is a nightmare for the Pharisees who cannot write the violations fast enough because they saw themselves as the authority over the Jewish faith. They saw themselves as the highest rung that they could pass and fail others under. And what Jesus does is begin to make a case And he's going to make a case that he is the final authority over creation. That he is the final authority over every human. That he is the final authority over religion. And here's what we need to see if you're taking notes. Jesus is the ultimate and the true lens through which we can accurately see the world and learn how to appropriately live for him. Jesus is the lens, not the rules. And Jesus makes his case first by name-dropping. He name-drops King David's name, a name more revered in the Jewish mind. There isn't one. And Jesus reminds the Pharisees of what's recorded in 1 Samuel when David, King David, and his soldiers were on the run from the enemy. And they stop at what would become the world's first drive through a temple, a Jewish temple. So David and his men are starving, and they ask for food. The priest on duty says, hey, man, we got nothing, on here, and we got nothing here except the, the bread of the presence, the showbread, 12 loaves baked and set aside to represent the 12 tribes of Israel and God's presence in their life, and that's all we got. And Jesus says, uh, guys, David, um, your King David and his guys ate that bread, and the priest said it was okay. And what Jesus is saying is that if it's okay for David and his men to eat the fancy bread under dire circumstances, it's okay for my disciples to eat fast food on the Sabbath too, since they didn't have any because they were hungry. And this is where Jesus turns them on their ear when he says in verse 6, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. If you'd known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would have not condemned the innocent, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And what Jesus is saying here is, you consider the temple a big deal, do you? I'm the biggest deal there is. You consider obeying religious rules a big deal? You know what's a bigger deal than that? Caring for people. Loving people well is more important than blindly following rituals, even good ones. And he's saying to them, you consider yourselves in charge of interpreting Sabbath law? Guess what? The boss's boss is here. And I have the ultimate authority to interpret the law. So the fire is solidly lit here. And we would expect Jesus and his followers to try their best to just blend into the background and not create any more hassles. But Jesus, Jesus has, he's tussled with these religious authorities and he's made them furious. And I think I know why. And this is the next one in your notes. When you, when you like power instead of people, when that's your preference, you become a spiritual fraud and you miss Jesus entirely. And the Pharisees craved power and they entirely missed caring for people. So they had it out for Jesus who had power and cared for the people. Okay, so where do we find Jesus next? We find him 
not blending into the background, we find him in the Pharisees' synagogue, in the Jewish temple. So Jesus, Jesus is either crazy or he's actually in charge. What we do know, he's not afraid. He knows what he's getting into and just with who. So picture the scene. A bunch of, wolf, uh, bunch of rich and well-dressed religious lawyers with fantastic hygiene and even better religious habits. But what we can see here is that good habits and nice clothes are not enough to make up for deaf ears and a cold heart. That's what we see. We see some well-dressed Pharisees, a poor rabbi claiming to be God, and a man with a shriveled hand. It sounds like the start of a joke, but it's not. But these Pharisees just a moment ago were hiding in the bushes ready to pop out in a grain field. Now the Pharisees are ready to pop out and spring a loaded question onto Jesus with the hope he'll incriminate himself and they can finally get back to life as usual with them at the top. So they ask him, begging him internally to get the question wrong. In verse 10, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Now, is work allowed on the Sabbath? No, that's an easy one. Any good Jew would know how to answer that. Any fifth grader would be smart enough to know, just say no, Jesus, put this fire out. But Jesus isn't afraid. He is really the authority. He's the boss's boss. And since he has nothing to fear, he begins to ask a list of what seems like stupid questions, overly simple questions. Question one, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Now, you and I here today would assume, of course, but to an ancient Jew or a Pharisee, this was a religious minefield of a question. Question two, who among you, if you had a sheep that fell into a pit on the Sabbath, wouldn't take hold of it and lift it out? Well, here's the thing. Today, if our dog fell in a hole, all of us would call the fire department. We would raise a ruckus. We would start a GoFundMe to get our, our dog out of the hole. That's not how the ancient world thought about animals. However, even if they did have one in the hole, they would want to pull it out. However, the rules of the Sabbath would limit them, and they might just wait till the next day when the Sabbath was over. Or they were allowed to kind of kick some debris into the hole to maybe their animal climb out of their own, or, or they could, you know, let some food fall in the hole, and maybe their animal would survive because they must not do work on the Sabbath. And with his simple questions asked, Jesus is going to follow his one-two punch with a hook that lands squarely when he, when he says shockingly in verse 12, a person is worth far more than a sheep, so it is lawful to do what is good on the Sabbath. Jesus stated what should have been obvious, people are worth more than animals because people and animals have worth, but both can and should be helped even if it's the Sabbath. And the Pharisees are livid. How dare you try to rearrange our religious system? How dare you elevate caring for people over our rules? How dare you come into our temple in your jeans and your t-shirt and try to tell us we're doing Judaism wrong? How dare you think you have any authority at all? And Jesus, with no fanfare or drum roll or spotlight, he's just armed with authority, He's going to now demonstrate that he plans to rearrange and finalize the Jewish faith. He's going to prove that he's fulfilled Jewish law, and he's going to usher in a new covenant in which loving your neighbor is one of the highest virtues. Jesus is going to come into their temple and establish he is the boss, that he has ultimate 
authority in their lives and even in ours. Verse 13, he told the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out and it was restored as good as the other. Pharisees would have been glad to leave this guy in the condition he was to appease the letter of the law. However, he'll still be crippled in the morning, so why he'll heal him now? Jesus, however, as the boss, as the Lord of the Sabbath, he exercised kind of the intent of the Sabbath law, bringing rest and healing to this man. And it was instant his hand was healed. And Jesus, I like how Jesus is so kind of sneaky and snarky. Jesus healed the man without working. He just spoke, just for fun. In front of the naysayers, in front of the angry crowds, Jesus' supernatural act, I think, momentarily zipped the lip and sucked every air molecule out of every lung in the room, and they're left going, who is this guy that he has power like this? John MacArthur remarked on this situation, and he said, you would think any reasonable, sensible person, even a Pharisee, would say, you know what, I need to rethink who this person is. Maybe I need to go back and take a look at this again because this is not explainable. That you, you just don't go from this to a fully functioning hand. And instead, we read in verse 14 that on the Sabbath, they went out and plotted against him how they might kill him. <sighs> kind of odd. First, they're nitpicking with Jesus that he's violating the Sabbath by picking grain and healing a man, but somehow it's okay to plan a murder on the Sabbath. That's how clouded, that's how blinded we can become when we allow power or preference or habits or ritual to become first place in our hearts instead of Jesus as first place in our hearts. So all the Sabbath talk should get us to thinking how we should think about the Sabbath now that Christ has come, he was crucified, he rose again proving he was God. And I think Paul teaches us well from Colossians 2 when Paul wrote, he, meaning Jesus, erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us, and he's taken it away by nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them in him. Therefore, don't let anyone judge you in regard to food and drink or in the matter of a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of what was to come. The substance is Christ. Jesus can be our Sabbath, our truest and our deepest rest. He can be yours today if you'll surrender to his authority and come to him in repentance. When we place our faith in Jesus alone, we go all in entering his rest and find a daily and an eternal Sabbath for a Christ follower every day is to be set aside to Jesus as a day of spiritual rest. No longer do you have to strive and work to get his love. Instead, you get to live in response to his forgiveness and his love. Also think about this. The earliest Christian leaders like Ignatius and Augustine, they all assumed that the Old Testament Sabbath and the form of following it had gone away. And instead, the first day of the week, not Sunday, would be the day when Christians would meet for worship. Now, Sunday hasn't replaced Saturday as a Sabbath, Instead, Sunday is a time when followers of Christ come together to remember him rising from the dead, which took place on the first day of the week. But every day for a Christian can be one of Sabbath peace and rest, which was made possible since we are freed from spiritual work of earning our salvation because Jesus offers that free gift. 
The author of Hebrews also wrote this in Hebrews 4.9, Therefore, a Sabbath rest remains for God people, God's people. For the person who has entered his rest has rested from his own works, just as God did from his. Let us then make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fall into the same pattern of disobedience. So before we finish, let's play a game called You Might Be a Pharisee. What if I told you that some of us in this room are guilty of some of the same crimes of the Pharisees? There's a pastor named Cameron Butel. He, he gave these three things uh, so we can consider them and make sure we're not guilty too. The first one is this. If you add to the Bible with man-made rules, you might be a Pharisee. Do you have a secret unwritten list of extra biblical do's and don'ts? Some of these even find their ways into the doctrinal statement of churches. Rules about wearing suits to church or else you're something bad. Rules about taking off your hat in God's presence. Rules about smoking, dancing, tattoos, piercings, unacceptable music styles, especially the ones you don't like. Here's a second one. If you preach a false gospel, you might be a Pharisee. Matthew 23, Jesus said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees! You travel over land and sea to make one convert, and when he comes to you, you make him twice as fit for hell as you are. That's our gentle Jesus. The Pharisees were bringing people into a false religious system that had replaced biblical Judaism. Nowadays, we have groups like Latter-day Saints or Jehovah's Witnesses. They work very hard, but they're bringing others to what's not true. Christian churches can also fall into this. The prosperity gospel does this in offering, it replaces eternal life with the seductive promise of health and wealth in the here and now. And the social gospel emphasizes temporary good works at the expense of eternal concerns, and both are errors. Both fall into the same pharisaical category. That's not what Jesus wants. Last one if you are a self-appointed biblical expert, you might be a Pharisee. If in all of your study and expertise, you don't see Jesus as king and reason and the reason for life and salvation, you have missed the bus. Jesus said in John 5, you pour over the scriptures because you think you have eternal life in them, and yet they testify about me, but you're not willing to come to me so that you may have life. So let's not miss Jesus. Let's not miss the life that's found in him. Let's not miss the glory and the virtue that's found in honoring the truest Sabbath there is, Jesus. Because there is such joy in living a life set aside for the Lord and learning to relish in the rest Jesus has purchased for you. There's freedom when we find ways to teach ourselves to rest and trust God to provide our needs we can really shake off a heavy weight when we loosen our grip on our own works and deeds, recognizing our, our deeds aren't putting points on the board, nor should they. Jesus has won the game already for us. And man, the light that can start shining when we learn to let go of the burden of anxiety, wondering if we've done enough, wondering if we are enough, and we begin to celebrate in what Christ has accomplished for us. Because when Jesus returns... He's going to, in a new way, kind of restore the Sabbath permanently when he's going to remove the curse 
And man, our world needs it. For now, I'm going to encourage everyone here. Come to Jesus in repentance. Come to him in submission. Declare that he is your boss. He is your Lord. And begin to live out a life of peace and of rest in him. Starting on today, the Lord's day. Let's pray. Jesus, we need you. You accomplish everything we can't. And so this morning, would you work in our hearts to help us find our rest in you? Thank you for accomplishing what we couldn't. May we live for you. In Jesus' name.